Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about housing, and there is no shortage of topics when it comes to housing. But looking at the fact that it is cold out, we've seen the temperatures drop below zero, and you don't have to walk very far in just about any neighborhood in downtown to find people who are sleeping on the street, to find people who clearly do not have housing. So what do we do? to even try and tackle the problem. Well, Michael Geller has been working in this area for many years. He's an architect, a planner, a developer. He's been on the program before and joins us again this morning. Uh, Michael Geller, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Joe. I'm pleased to be with you. Uh, You tweeted about this saying, uh, looking at a study that you worked on in 2009. So we're talking about a study 10 years ago, looking at modular housing. We do have some modular housing now, clearly not enough. What do you think about that kind of disconnect from a topic that was front and center 10 years ago, and still we don't seem to have a solution? The, um, the the story behind the story is that I think I once mentioned to you, and I, I studied architecture at the University of Toronto in the uh, 60s, and my thesis was based on the idea that I had seen modular housing being built in a factory, and I thought, there's no reason why, if you want to reduce the cost of housing, you couldn't set up modular units on vacant land, park, private, privately owned, publicly owned, on the understanding that when the land is ready to be redeveloped, so it might be a parking lot today or just vacant, then the modular homes would move to another location. And, um, I mean, many people questioned the feasibility of the idea, but I thought it was a, a good idea. Then during the 2008 municipal election, Gregor Robertson was running for the first time, and he promised to end homelessness. And so homelessness was very much top of mind. That's 11 years ago. And uh, as an NPA candidate, as my daughters often proudly say, I was the first loser. Uh, um, I put forward this idea with Peter Ladner, and many people thought, you know, maybe this is something worth exploring. And in fact, BC Housing did fund a study after the election so we could test out the idea. But unfortunately... As George Affleck has pointed out, because it was seen as an NPA idea rather than a vision idea, it took about five or six years before it started. And so I'm very pleased to see that the modular housing program did finally get realized. But the idea that we put forward in the study was something even more modest than what's being built. I mean, for those people who don't know, the modular housing provides not just shelter, but in many cases, People are getting meals, they're getting life uh, skills in terms of maybe learning how they might get back into employment or whatever. We were looking at a program with services, but with housing more like you find in those northern camps. You know, if you ever look at those rows and rows of oftentimes barren-looking structures, but inside they might have a 10-by-10 room with a private bathroom and a a closet, and... uh, it's, it's relatively affordable compared to building a new unit. And so to answer, I'm sorry, that's a very long-winded answer to your question. I mean, we've been struggling for, for many years trying to figure out how to deal with this problem. But when I see people sleeping in tents in the freezing cold, not just in Vancouver now, but in Kelowna and many other uh, locations, I thought, we have to do something better than allowing people to sleep in tents because it's just a matter of time before they're going to bring in some form of heaters and they're going to burn the place down.
So that so that's that's really the background to why we have these modular units. I'm just saying let's continue that idea, but maybe use some of those uh, trailers that are up in the northern uh, British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, bring them down, wrap them on the outside so that they look like a forest, they don't look like a white structure with some orange lettering on them, and set them up on not just city land, but on private land as well. Hmm. Do you think, would it take off though, and we've heard from some people living in Oppenheimer Park uh, saying things like they don't want to have to share a kitchen and they don't want to go into anything that's more of a shelter than a home. Would it, would it appeal to enough people, do you think, or be enough of a solution? Uh, uh, yes, because having been in shelters, I mean, when you go inside these shelters, uh, I mean, it really some of them really are very, very awful. And for one thing, I mean, it's a room full of cots. There's oftentimes nowhere to lock up your stuff. And as we know, many of these people, and when I say these people, I'm starting to sound like John, Don Cherry. I don't mean to sound that way. Indeed, I think one of the problems, and I discussed this with Charles Adler this week, one of the problems we have is because we generally don't know the homeless, they oftentimes become invisible or we become disconnected from them in terms of our feelings. But at any rate, there's nowhere to lock up your possessions. There's abuse that takes place in the middle of the night. Uh, There's all sorts of problems. At least the advantage of, of these the housing you find in the north is you have your own space. Now, interestingly, when I did the study, I said everybody should have a private toilet. And Janice Abbott of Atira, who's one of the most caring and effective people in the province when it comes to uh, creating housing, especially for women, she said, you know, some of these people may not even be able to look after their own bathroom, at least at the beginning. So in some cases, having shared bathroom. Um, In terms of meals, Yes, the, 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 the issue that you can't prepare your own meal would be an issue for some, but it's still better than being a shelter. The other thing is, I discovered this when I was doing a little bit of work in the community. When you live in a shelter, you're not allowed to use it as an address. And if you're applying to, trying to apply for some work, oftentimes you need to give an address. I mean, there's a simple thing to say, even if you are in a shelter, let people use the address for the purposes of trying to get employment. But the bigger problem is in a shelter, there's nowhere to put your possessions. You're in an open space. I I mentioned this to someone the other week with with some reluctance. But, you know, most of the new storage lockers, many storage lockers that are being built provide a much higher standard of accommodation than the shelters that, that are being operated at considerable cost. I know that's very, very true. Uh, You mentioned safety as well. And I think just this past week, uh, Vancouver Fire has said they found uh, some very dangerous situations in Oppenheimer Park. Uh, One case of of two propane tanks hooked up with a garden hose to into burners to cook food inside a tent, which is just a recipe that is going to lead. There is going to be a fire. There is going to be something horrible happen. And, And you're right. I mean, coming to work this morning, there were people on Granville Street sleeping on tiny pieces of cardboard board with a little blanket. Well, that's not that's not okay, especially in this type of weather. Uh, what do we need then other than the the political will or to stop making it so political? What would actually have to happen to make this happen? Well, it, it would be interesting for your listeners to call in and tell, give you their opinions on this, because it's what Charles Adler was suggesting 
And he was referencing a, a member of the cloth, uh, a reverend in Kelowna, who basically was dismissing the needs of a lot of homeless people, essentially saying, you know, it's their own fault that they've got themselves in this situation. And, uh, I mean, we've somehow lost our collective uh, heart when it comes to the needs of, of many people. And I must admit, it's hard not to. I'm oftentimes the same in that I, I see many people, I, I, I walk past them. I, you know, I did this week and I kept thinking, you know, should you stop and ask somebody if they're all right? And, and you don't. I think we need to somehow change our attitude to, 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 the, to people. But at the same time, I do think the government's, and then when I say governments, it's really all three levels of government. The federal government especially has a role to play because many people are still coming to British Columbia from other parts of the country. Even though it's minus four degrees here, it's minus 14 degrees in Toronto and minus 40 degrees in parts of Saskatchewan. So the federal government needs to play a role here. But I think part of it is all of us need to start to think about you know, is there anything we can do? You know, one thing I talked again uh, about is this notion, and it's an unpopular one, of family reunification. Every, virtually every one of the people who's on the street does have a family somewhere. Now, they may have left their family, and that's why they're on the street, because their family treated them so badly growing up. But on the other hand, there are people who do have families <clears throat> who I'm sure an effort should, could be made to help bring them together. I discovered this serving meals at Christmas one year uh, in the downtown east side. So there's one thing. Anybody who's listening right now who has a relative that they know is on the street, Christmas is coming. Maybe there's a need to try and see if you can't make that connection again, you know, as time has gone by. That's one thing. Uh, the other thing is, Employment opportunities. There's a wonderful organization in Vancouver called Embers, E-M-B-E-R-S. They try to help people who are on the streets, both homeless or really marginally living, to learn skills so that they can get work. Just employing some of these people. When I ran for city council, I had people affiliated with Embers making all my campaign signs. I mean, <laughs> you know, it was a small thing, but it was trying to promote that idea. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, I think we all collectively have to care a little bit more. And, uh, and maybe, maybe one thing I would suggest is uh, tonight, go and drive through Hastings Street tonight and just see the situation down there. I mean, it's literally horrific. And uh, if we could collectively figure out what, what, you know, what uh, different things might be done. One of the tragedies, and this may sound absurd, is most of us have empty rooms in our homes. Many of us have empty garages. When I was in New York recently, I learned about a program in California where people are being encouraged to make their garages available to the homeless. Now, there's actually a nonprofit that helps you make your garage a little more livable. All I'm doing is trying to throw out a range of different ideas because I think things are just getting so bad we can't keep going on the way we are. All right. Well, interesting, uh, interesting points and ideas. Uh, Michael, we could go on for hours, uh, but we'll, we'll leave it there for this morning. Thank you, as always, for being available and joining us today.
It was my pleasure. Thanks for your interest. Uh, we're going to take a look now at wages and in particular wages in British Columbia, comparing those of government to employees and those in the private sector. And the difference might be bigger than you thought. Joining me to talk a bit more about this is Jason Clemens, who's executive vice president of the Fraser Institute. Jason, thank you so much for being with us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, you have put out, uh, the Institute has put out a report taking a look at this. So what do you actually look at when comparing the salaries, uh, everything that's involved with salary between the two groups? Right. So uh, the first thing and the most important thing that, that we do is that we control for a whole bunch of variables that we know explain wage levels and benefits. So uh, we control for education, how long people have been in the job, what kind of job it is, what sector it's in. Um, and so what we're trying to do is control for all the other variables, at least those that we have data for, um, so that we're really getting at the heart of two people doing basically the same job with the same education in the same area uh, so that we can really get down to what is the difference between working in the government sector and the private sector. Um, because to be candid, too often we just look at the public sector or the government sector versus the private sector without controlling for those differences, and the gap is huge. So, for example, if you don't control for any of those variables, uh, the difference in average wages is thir- almost 32%. When you actually control for education and all these things that we know would would, would account for different wages and benefits, uh, the difference is 5.8%. So, in other words, on average, a worker in the government sector, similar job, similar education, similar tenure, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, on average makes 5.8% more in wages than if he or she worked in the in the um, in the private sector. And were you surprised by that number, that difference? Um, well, it's actually very interesting because British Columbia has, at least as far as we've we've looked at so far, actually has the smallest gap in the country. So in other words, the gap between the government sector and the private sector is the smallest in British Columbia. Uh, it's much smaller than it is in uh, Ontario, where it's over 10%, uh, much smaller than in Alberta excuse me, where it's just under 10%, uh, and we have some preliminary data now for Atlantic Canada, uh, where it's well over 10%. So uh, what's actually, as I say, what's actually interesting is the gap is fairly small in British Columbia, and I think in part um, it's because we've had a, a government, uh, at least before the current government, uh, who spend a lot of time and effort trying to make sure uh, that they were slowing the growth in spending, um, reasonably managing the province's finances. Uh, and so, that, as I say, that gap compared to other provinces is quite small. And when we look at what causes the gap, is it, is it salary or is it something more, I guess, nuanced in the, the defined benefit pensions that comes often with those government jobs? Right. So great question. So the, the 5.8% uh, premium, if you work in the government sector, only relates to average wages. Uh, Unfortunately, Statistics Canada does not collect individual statistics on things like pensions, which are critically important because they're they're so expensive. Um, What we can do, however, is look in aggregate. So in other words, we can't look at individual jobs and individual education levels and say, well, what's the difference in pensions? 
But what we can do is look in total in the in the private sector versus the government sector. Uh, and what we see across most benefits that we can measure um, is that the government sector enjoys a premium, in particular with respect to pensions. So uh, a worker in the government sector is 12 times more likely to have what's called a defined benefit pension, which is really the gold standard. Um, that means that their benefit in retirement is guaranteed. Uh, they're 12 times more likely than workers in the private sector to have that type of pension. So um, in other words, in British Columbia, there's a small wage premium if you work in the government sector. And on top of that, you tend to have much better benefits. Which is interesting, given what we've seen in the province, even in the past few weeks, looking at the transit labor dispute and some of the other labor disputes that we've had, because the numbers that we often hear is the two, two and two for public sector workers. And I mean, that was compared a lot to the transit strike saying, look at what we're offering transit workers. It's much higher than what was offered, what's being offered to other union members in the the public sector. It gives the impression that there's not that gap. So, yeah, so I think there's a couple things. Uh, so the first is that most governments in Canada, thankfully, uh, understand the difficulty they're having right now with their pensions. Uh, in other words, the, the cost to deliver their pensions, given the benefit levels, are under increasing pressure. And the reason for that, which I'm sure all your listeners know, is that interest rates are very low. And so for pensions to generate the rates of return needed to deliver those benefits, particularly uh, those defined or guaranteed benefits in the government sector, uh, is becoming increasingly difficult. Um, the second thing that is really influencing negotiations, and I think will, will influence negotiations more so, um, is that we are in a low inflation environment. So I think when workers here, I'm only getting a 2% or a 3% increase they're not realizing or it's, it's been counterintuitive for so long that that's actually a real increase in their wage because inflation is so low and has been so low for almost the better part of a decade now. Um, and so I, I think those two things, again, low interest rates and comparatively low inflation um, are really making it more difficult than it has been uh, in the past. And certainly if you go back maybe a decade and a half or so, uh, much more difficult in terms of negotiations uh, then versus now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the report also looks at job security and early retirement, and I thought that was interesting in that to government workers in this province, uh, they tend to retire a bit earlier compared to private sector workers, and they also have a better sense or a better better job security. Yeah, that's right. Um, if you look at uh, the retirement, it's almost two years difference uh, in terms of the average age of retirement if you're in the government sector versus the private sector. Um, and certainly job loss, it's, it's frankly pretty rare uh, in the government sector to experience job loss. Uh, now, again, I, I think the, the main thing for your listeners to consider, though, is it's really, or at least from my perspective, it's really not these individual characteristics. So the pension, uh, the retirement age in particular, I suppose, um, and then the wage, it, it's the totality of those things that we should care about, right? So for instance, if you're an employer and you have two workers and one worker wants to retire early and they want a great pension, but they're willing to take a much lower wage and the other worker says, no, don't worry about me. I just want a high wage now and I'll worry about those things. 
as an employer, you really don't care except for the total cost. And if the total cost is comparable, again, the employer really doesn't care or they shouldn't care. The problem is that when we look at the wage, the benefit, retirement age, in every case, on average, the government sector has an advantage over the private sector. And and that's where the problem lies, which is that the total cost for similar workers is much higher in the government sector than it is in the private sector. And that's true across all the provinces. Again, as we as we talked about briefly, while the gap is smaller in British Columbia, it still is nonetheless a gap. Right. And because didn't that used to be the trade-off was if you were working in government, you might have a smaller salary, but the pension and all of these other benefits made up for it. Whereas in the private sector, somebody in a similar job might have the bigger salary, but not the benefits. That's right. It, that's exactly the, the, the bargain, so to speak, <clears throat> pardon me, used to be that um, the government sector would have slightly lower wages, but they would retire earlier and they would have uh, these defined benefit pensions, which, again, guarantee the benefit in retirement, which are, are just the gold standard. Uh, very few private sector employers uh, can, can afford to provide those any longer. Um, that bargain has just unwound over the last, uh, I guess it's almost two and a half decades now, um, where when you dig into the data and you do the analysis properly by accounting for all of these factors, such as education and occupation, um, what we see, again, is not only a wage premium in the government sector, but better benefits. Um, And so certainly that bargain has been unwound. All right. Well, interesting findings and uh, information there. Jason, we will leave it at that. But thank you so much for coming on the show this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, later on this morning, around 11 a.m., some Vancouver residents are going to be rallying to mark 10 years since the Little Mountain social housing community was torn down. They are calling on government to take back Little Mountain. And joining me to talk a bit more about how things will unfold and why the rally is taking place is David Chudnovsky, who is an advocate for the the area for those that will be at the rally today. David, thank you so much for being with us. You're very welcome. Uh, How big of a crowd do you expect there today? Well, we'll see. Uh, We've had a very good response from the social media that we've been doing and the the messages that we've had in the traditional media, lots of people getting in touch. So I'm sure that there'll be a a good crowd. We also know from from the last 10 to 12 years since this this, uh, terrible tragedy at Little Mountain has taken place, that uh, loads and loads of Vancouverites have been interested and, uh, frankly, appalled at what's happened uh, around Little Mountain. So we're expecting a good crowd. And take us back, if you can, for people that haven't been following along with this, and give us a bit of a brief history of what happened at that site. Well, Little Mountain was the first social housing site in Vancouver. It was built uh, shortly after the Second War. Um, and it was a very successful social housing site. In 2007, uh, BC Housing, which was then the uh, the owner of Little Mountain, uh, the provincial organization run by the provincial government, began to push people out of Little Mountain, saying that it would be redeveloped. And it took a couple of years before they got almost all of the residents to leave. And then in November of 2009... Exactly 10 years ago, uh, the uh, social housing site, the, the community was uh, demolished, 
And since then, uh, there was supposed to be redevelopment on the site, but anybody who lives in Vancouver and has been by uh, Little Mountain uh, Social Housing site at about 33rd and uh, and Ontario Street, 15 acres, it's a giant vacant lot, and it has been for 10 years. And what has been the delay? Because it was sold to a private developer. There was a plan to for the developer to to build market housing and to provide more social housing on that site. It's been delayed several times at the civic level. What is causing that delay? Well, it's unclear. Uh, we've asked for the contract for ten year, uh, for more than ten years to see what what the the elements of the contract are between. Uh, BC Housing and uh, Holborn Developments. Uh, we uh, haven't received that. I've got a Freedom of Information application in. We don't know why the uh, thing has been delayed, but I just want to um, not exactly correct you, but clarify one of the things you said. It's not more social housing uh, or almost not more social housing. The contract was for Holborn simply to replace uh, the existing social housing that was demolished and build hundreds and hundreds, sometimes uh, depending on the estimate that they give, it's up to 1,500 uh, units of expensive condominiums. And we say, and the neighbor, uh, the neighbors say, and the former residents say, that's not what we need in Vancouver. We don't need 1,500 more million-dollar condos. What we need is to replace the social housing that was there, to build hundreds more uh, uh, units of social housing, to build below-market rental for people who are looking for that, co-ops and co-housing. That's what's needed in Vancouver, affordable housing for real people to stay in the city. Right. Uh, d- does it frustrate you? You were the housing critic at the time. You were a New Democrat MLA. We now have a New Democrat government in BC, and it doesn't seem like this government is willing to, to change things. I mean, I don't know how much they could do. It's been sold to a, a private company. But is it frustrating for you that now, even under an NDP government, there isn't anything being done about this? Well, from our point of view, there are three steps to this uh, uh to this uh, situation from here on in. The first is for everybody to take a step back and to acknowledge that this redevelopment scheme has been a dismal failure. It's crazy to have this giant vacant lot sitting in the middle of the city when there's a housing crisis and an affordable housing crisis. So that's the first step. Everybody has to acknowledge that the, that the plan has failed. The second step is for responsible residents like us to... Uh, push to campaign to uh, to encourage to pressure government, the provincial government and the uh, municipal government and even the federal government to have the political will to do something about this uh, crazy situation with this giant vacant lot in the middle of the city. We're ready to continue to do that. To uh, this is the beginning of a campaign that we're calling "Take Back the Mountain." to encourage the uh, uh, provincial government, which doesn't have responsibility for, for uh, uh, the terrible things that have happened at Little Mountain. It was the previous government uh, and the, uh, the Minister of Housing, uh, um, who, uh, Rich Coleman, who at the time made these decisions. So, and in fact, all three governments have changed. The provincial government is a new provincial government. The city government is a new city government. The federal government, uh, uh, Prime Minister Harper is gone. So all of the governments that were in power when this, when this appalling decision was made um, are gone. Nobody needs to save face. That's what we're trying to convince people of. And uh, the campaign starts today. Take back the mountain. Who do you blame then mostly for what's happened here? 
well, it has to be the uh, previous liberal provincial government and and Rich Coleman. They had this idea that they were going to privatize the uh, the site. This is a site that was a, that was that belonged to all of us as British Columbians. Their their plan was to privatize the site, site and somehow that was going to uh, um, be a, a good move to make in terms of housing for the people of Vancouver. Not only was it a bad plan because the uh, the plan was for expensive condos and simply replacing the social housing. Not only was it a bad plan, but that bad plan hasn't been implemented. So the the main responsibility has to go to uh, to uh, the former Liberal government and Rich Coleman. In fact, we call the site uh, the Rich Coleman vacant lot. Uh, does it seem strange to you then, even right now, and it's a new civic government in Vancouver, but instead of looking at this site or perhaps trying to get some movement on this site, they're talking about uh, developing golf courses? Well, I'm not going to get into a debate with the the, uh, the municipal government about uh, other pl- other plans that they have. But what I can say on behalf of the g- groups and individuals who are involved in, in this uh, campaign is that what really doesn't make sense, what is really crazy, and every single Vancouverite who drives by the site knows this, what's really crazy is that 10 and 12 years later, we have a gigantic vacant lot uh, at Little Mountain when what we should have is homes that people can afford and that they can access. You know, we've done a bit of a calculation. People who live in social housing pay rent. And it's been 12 years since some of those people have been gone. And we uh, uh, have calculated that the provincial treasury is out $20 million and counting because Little Mountain is empty. That doesn't make sense. It's time to acknowledge that this is a failure. It's time to take back the mountain. And it's time to build the kind of housing that people need and deserve in Vancouver. Have you had any conversations with Holborn, with the developer, as to why they haven't done anything? Because I can't imagine it's in their best interest or their plan was to purchase this land and sit on it for 12 years either. Uh, we haven't talked to Holborn for 10 or 12 years. Early on, when the uh, when the uh, uh, project was was announced, we uh, a number of us from the area met with Holborn and encouraged them to uh, make a plan for uh, a development that included way more social housing than simply than simply replacing the uh, social housing that was originally there. And uh, they responded negatively to that suggestion. And since then, not much has happened. All right. Well, the rally gets underway at 11 o'clock this morning. And uh, lots of people expected for that. Uh, David Chodofsky, thank you so much for joining us uh, to bring us up to the date on this. Thank you very much.